This episode may contain content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Nikki. And I'm Mariah. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Body to Burial. Welcome back, everybody. Before we get started on today's episode, I wanted to tell you guys about a recent podcast that I have become obsessed with. A lot of times you guys message us and ask us what other podcasts we like to listen to. And I think that you should add this one to your library. It is called This One's a Doozy. And This One's a Doozy is a weekly podcast dedicated to all things true crime, paranormal, spooky. And each week, Haley sits down with her husband, Kevin, and tells him a story of kind of unusual and unsavory things going on in the world. But they do deliver it with respect, care, and they have a variety of topics and a huge emphasis on giving to organizations that lift up victims of violent crimes in their families. So they're also just the most genuine people. So go check it out. Give it a listen. It's called This One's a Doozy and it's available on all podcast platforms. I highly suggest it. I haven't been able to stop listening. So go check it out. You will not be disappointed. Now I'm going to scoot over to just some housekeeping items. So I wanted to give a special shout out to Cassie, who just joined our Patreon group at the coroner's level. Welcome, Cassie. Thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it. You too can join us over on patreon.com. You get access to early episodes, ad-free episodes. We have pictures from guests that are exclusive. We actually just added one from our autopsy episode. If you listen to that, Jessica talked about how she found a live snake during an autopsy. You heard me correctly, a live snake. And she sent us some photos of that that we just added to the Patreon page. So there's all sorts of fun goodies. We have book clubs, candles, stickers, all great stuff. Come over and join us. It really helps us. Nikki and I do everything from start to finish on this podcast. We do all the editing, guest research, all of that fun stuff. So all of your support greatly helps us in being able to purchase new editing tools and software and things that are going to improve the quality of the show, which will make your listening experience that much better. So every little bit helps and we greatly appreciate it. So thank you again, Cassie. And uh, if you're interested in joining and supporting the show, that's a great way to do it. We have different levels. So go check it out. Patreon.com backslash body to burial. Okay. Are you ready for today? I'm ready for today. Yes, I, I am. I think it's a, an interesting one because for me, I think it's something we see depicted a lot in movies and TV. So I think there will be a lot of myths and misconceptions with this particular job. Okay. And I'm super curious how one gets into this job because it seems like a lot of responsibility that I wouldn't want. And I'm curious, like as, you know, a teen or, you know, a high school student, picking out my career choice, how you even process this one is one you want to do. So this week we're welcoming Heather, who is a former warden of a women's prison. Ooh, yeah. that's fun. Right? So yeah, I feel like there's just so much to cover from like relationships and contraband and commissary and escape inmates and correctional uh officer relations and bribes and I mean I just feel like it could go forever well I it's just like you know I love 60 days in it makes me very uncomfortable but I watch it yes I feel like I yeah like that's your life every single day that's gotta mm-hmm. be rough well and how weird to like that's your life and you go in and you leave and those people never leave or oh don't leave for God, years yes like the mental is like a weird thing and then you come back you're like oh back again good uh-huh. morning like a never-ending slumber party yeah okay I'm excited let's get her on okay I think yeah let's just hop to it because I, I feel like this one's gonna have a lot yeah I feel like this one has so many movie references that I'll try to hold myself back I mean seriously my mind's already reeling so yeah let's get her I'm excited for this week okay Heather Hello. Yay, there you are. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. 
thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. We really appreciate you being here with us. Well, I appreciate the invite. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, let's just ease into it. So Heather, you previously were a warden. And I think for me, especially having watched Orange is the New Black, and I read (laughs) her book and things like that, it sends your mind into this place of complete imagination. And is that really what it's like? How you see it depicted on TV are all these weird trades happening and rivalries and all sorts of crazy things. What is the truth to what the public perception of being a warden is. I absolutely hated that show. In fact, I I rarely watched it. Everyone at my facility, everyone in my department of corrections considered it a little bit of a joke. It was very frustrating as well, because while it's not completely based on a non-reality, it was definitely exaggerated, I guess is a good word. And it was frustrating on our end because it depicted things that, at least in, in my experience, never would have happened. Now, there were some things that were accurate, like when they depicted familial relationships that are created amongst the women, you know, mothers, daughters, aunts, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That is true. A lot of the contraband part, yeah, that can be true. But I guess it was the way that they depicted how staff interacted with the offenders, uh, a lot of the rivalry stuff, it was so overdramatic. And never would have been allowed to occur. So you as a warden, you oversee the whole entire prison itself and the employees plus inmates? Yes. And actually my position was deputy warden. So at my facility, the warden was responsible for everything. And then there were two deputy wardens. One oversaw a large section and the other one oversaw the custody side of things. So I was the one who oversaw programming, medical. I did recreation pretty much everything but custody. Just to break it down for our listeners, what does custody mean? Custody would be the COs, those in charge of the security of the facility. Walk us through what you would do in a typical day. What does that mean? How are you interacting with people? What are your responsibilities? Well, okay. So a typical day as a deputy warden, our office was located in an administration building, which was not inside the fence. And we would have meetings and the meetings involved everything from budgets to department head meetings to executive staff meetings. We would meet with individual staff. We would have calls to central office where we'd have to meet with them weekly or monthly and discussing policies or upcoming things that needed to happen. If there were issues that happened at other facilities, we would debrief on those. And then it was a matter of correspondence with families who we would call with concerns or with issues. I mean, it was just kind of everything from HR to a specific issue in a specific dorm where there might be a laundry issue or there was a medical issue or someone is ill or there's a, an education side of things that, you know, something was happening there that needed to be addressed. Every day was different. You really didn't know what to expect other than here are the meetings that you have this week. <laughs> Make sure you get to these meetings and everything in between is just like, OK, what's happening now? That's a full like eight to 12 hour day. It's an eight hour day. Mm-hmm. OK, well, I mean, it's eight hours unless something comes catastrophic. Up than eight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where your prison was, was it, so they had dorms? Does that mean multiple people within one room? Right. So where mine was located, it was fairly typical in terms of, I mean, you kind of walk from the administration building out inside the fence, then you go through a double door that's locked and you have to go through security and metal detector, that kind of thing. So then you get inside the facility and you would walk down kind of a main thoroughfare and things would shoot off. You'd shoot off to the right and you'd get to the maintenance area, the physical plant area, laundry area. Then there was a recreation area. Then there was the parenting area. Then there was what we would call the OSB, which was the offender services building. And inside there, you would find medical education. That's where the security officers that were in charge. So your majors, your captains, your sergeants, Their offices were located in that area. And then at the top of that hill outside of the OSB, the housing units shot off in, you know, sort of like octopus legs. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Oh, yeah. 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 Sort of all in a row. Um, And there was a a street that kind of went to each housing unit. And then we had, of course, a separate housing unit for segregation. What does that mean? Offenders that cannot cope in open population 
for one reason or another, that's where they would go for segregation. So they did their whole sentence there or just at times they would go in and out? No, it was no, no. No one ever spent their whole sentence there. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then where you worked, did you have people there for life? Oh, yeah. Just people? Yeah, we had everything. We were a maximum security female facility and we had offenders there for everything from writing bad checks to sex offenses to murdering their children. I mean, everything in between. Oh, I watched this show um, 60 Days In. It's on Annie, I think it is. And they have where it's people will go in and see if they could handle the prison system. Yeah. I always get so stressed out. I'm like, I couldn't even last a day. I'll tell you that. I couldn't do it. They showed this women's facility once and the women get word of whoever's incoming. And if it's a woman who murdered her child, they get rules about that. They don't like her. They were trying to get her out as quick as possible. It was it was interesting to see what's okay to them and what's not okay to them in that like world. And I kept thinking, what are they drinking in those cups? Because then they would make these drinks that was kind of like a coffee, but it just looked like watered down brown coffee. Oh, it was freaking me out. That I couldn't do. (laughs) Yeah, but it gives you like a little glimpse into the world of being in prison. And it's tough for you to work there is probably tough every day. That's got to be a tough one. It was. It definitely changes your perspective in a very big way. Yeah. I worked in corrections for almost 18 years and it really makes you quite cynical to some degree. Yeah. Because it's got to be hard too because you see some that are... They're just wrong place, wrong time, did something, a bad mistake. And then they're put into that with people that that's just their lifestyle. And that's got to be tough. It is. It absolutely is. And that's a, that's a major problem. What happens with those people? They just have to serve their time and try to make it out as best as they can. Yes. Oh, that's hard. It is hard. But at the same time, when your facility is run extremely well, it makes it easier on the offenders. When you are consistent, when you are fair, firm, and consistent, and you follow policies and you follow procedures and everybody does their job the way that they're supposed to, it makes it very easy on the offenders. If there's a problem, we are made known about it immediately. We take care of it. You know, those kinds of things make that part a little bit easier, as easy as it possibly could be. You know what I'm saying? When you're in there and they get mail and they do the phones, are you guys monitoring all that stuff too? Is there someone's job that that's just, they're the mail people and then they're the phone people? Uh, The mail people, there's a mail room where people are in charge of incoming and outgoing, making sure that nothing's coming in or going out that shouldn't be. And the telephone is a separate entity, but yes, there are people that monitor that as well. Okay. And then as a warden, you're responsible for if anything's found in a letter or then you address all that stuff too? Right. So if I'm made aware of a problem, then I would make sure that policy was followed and those people who are in charge of handling that would take care of that. So you're kind of like a big HR, like you're the head of H kind of. Yes. I mean, almost. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. When you're the warden, the book stops with you. That facility is your responsibility. And it is like, there's no, oh, this is someone else's fault. Every aspect of that facility is your responsibility. How many people realistically are under you as a deputy warden? Couple hundred? Well, it depends on the facility. You know, it depends on the size of the facility. We had about 1,200 offenders at my facility. So the warden was responsible ultimately for the safety and security of everyone in that facility, including the nearly 300 staff. And then our departments were separated out between the two deputy wardens from there. So that's a lot. You do deal with the inmates too, like if they have a complaint or the inmates families, or that's something separate? No, that that's absolutely something we would do. In fact, when I was deputy warden, I was still teaching programming inside the facility. So that's if they wanted get their GED or? Well, there's all kinds of programming. At our facility in particular, we were extremely proactive in what we offered. So not just education, we offered obviously your GED, but we also offered associates and bachelor's degrees. We offered multiple vocational programs, culinary arts, building trades. We had a, oh, we partnered with TLM. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that. They first started, it's a coding program that they started in San Quentin. 
And I think we were the second facility, second or third that they started as for a coding program at, within our Department of Corrections, which then we ended up, I think we had five coding programs at five different facilities. So we offered a ton of educational and vocational programs, but we also taught moral recognition therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. I mean, they're just tons and tons. There was a program called Purposeful Living Units Serve, which was a character-based program. We did what used to be called CLIF, which was Clean Lifestyle is Freedom Forever. It's called something different now, but it was an intensive inpatient substance abuse treatment program. I mean, just oodles and gobs of programming. Do a lot of people take advantage of that or yes. is it hard to get? Oh, okay, good. Yeah. yeah. Everyone that can take advantage of it does, but there's a whole process to determining which programs are appropriate for which offenders. And so at our facility in our state, there is a whole case management program that every facility has, and there's evidence-based practices put into place for case management. There's a whole evaluation that happens when an offender first comes into the facility where you assess everything from their socioeconomic background to their crime, to their criminal history, their mental health, their educational status, everything gets assessed and then put into this program that basically helps you decide, okay, what programs can we offer to this person that will reduce their likelihood of recidivizing, which is the whole goal. You, you want to lessen recidivism. You don't want them coming back. So that was the whole goal was here's what we offer. Here's what you need. Let's get you in there and start you as, as quickly as possible. That's so neat. I worked on this out in California and you have to apply for the program, but they take 50 kids that have been in either in juvenile hall or kind of in and out and they need to start to change their life because now they're teenagers and whatever. And so they do this program that, and I do the makeup for it. So it's at the Performing Arts Center, but they learn how to do art and sing and dance and all these things that you wouldn't think a gang member would be wanting to do or all these programs that you think they wouldn't be into, but they get into and they give them food. And then obviously the ones that are in juvenile hall, they have the correctional officers with them. I always ask every year, how many do you think in this group do you think will make a change? Because I want all 50 to benefit from it and change their life, you know, like a movie. And they always say like about one, our goal is to get one or two to kind of change their thinking, mm -hmm. but it's all different factors where they say, you know, their families are in a gang or their families are drug addicts and this happens and that happens and it's a lifestyle and then it's this and it's that. And it's just so sad to see, you know, it's such a cool program and it does really good, but yeah, I just wish there was more of them that would make a change, but it's sad. That, that was a common frustration with working in corrections is you're offering all of these amazing programs and they work. They work. We wouldn't be doing it if they didn't. However, you have to really be ready to change. And that's with anybody. That's a given. If you are not ready to change, it's not going to be successful for you, no matter how many skills you're provided with, no matter what kind of release plan we've created for you to make sure that you have everything you need. If you are not ready to change, it's all for nothing. And you cannot force someone to change. You just can't. And I would see that time and again, when I would have offenders come back and come back and come back and come back. And then finally, one day they would come in and say, I'm tired. I'm tired of doing this. I want to stop. I want to be done. And then they would change and I would never see them again. I would get cards or letters, or they would even call back sometimes because for some of these people, you become sort of a family to them, especially if they were sort of raised in the system. That's all they know. Yeah. And so when they do something that they're proud of, they want you to know, <laughs> hey, yeah. look how good I'm doing, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They have some students that'll come back that have made a change, maybe not right away, but eventually, and they'll speak to the other kids, tell their story and whatever else. And it's funny because the correctional officers, the ones that have been there, I mean, they've been there as long as, long as I've been doing it. And it is, they all act like a family and they were, they're proud of them as if it, they were their 
son, brother, you know, whatever. It's really neat to see. And they remember them too. I mean, obviously remember them, but because yeah, that's what they said too to me is that they go in and out of the the system since they were young too. Yeah, that's, I mean, and you know, honestly, no one goes into corrections because of the money. You're not there because you're making tons of money. (laughs) That's just not the way it is. And it's definitely not glamorous. So you do it because you feel like you are helping in some way, shape and form. And that's really what all of us want to do, right? Is to help someone. And so when you put so much time and energy into others, trying to lift them up and help them, and then time and again, you see them come back, it really takes a toll. Yeah, because it's got to be disappointing. Like, how many times do I have to say it? Like a kid, how many times... Do we have to go through this? And right. how many times? Yeah. And then it's completely up to them, you know, and I don't know if you're familiar with Stephanie Covington. She is a sort of world-renowned trauma recovery expert. She came into our facility and helped us create programming that was based on trauma recovery, uh, specifically for women, but it could be applied to men as well, because really... And I've said this a thousand times, at least 90% of the people we would see had some form of trauma in their life. And I mean, and that's kind of a common theme with most people in society, I think, to some degree. But the trauma that these people experienced was hardcore and a basis for their behavior, whether it was stealing something to sell to get drugs, whether it was selling drugs, whether it was prostituting yourself to get drugs, whether it was becoming a violent criminal because you never addressed your trauma. And so everything is projected onto someone else and everything was based in trauma. So the important aspect of addressing that right off the bat really started to make a difference, whether they knew it or not, you know, whether the offenders knew that's what was happening, it clicked. The trauma recovery was Oh my gosh. So beneficial. That's funny that you say that. Cause all the kids, I would say every year does not fail. I would say 95% have some sort of trauma or abuse, something that they all have it. And some are open and will tell you their stories and their situations. And some don't there's, I would say 95% have some, what you just said. That's so wild. Yes. Yeah. That's why the trauma recovery research and programming is vital. We incorporated that into our substance abuse programming and into our plus unit. We incorporated it into every aspect that we could because that's really what matters. If you can address that root cause, then things start to click with everything else that you're trying to instill, you know? Yeah, that's really neat. Are they receptive to it at first or once they kind of had a couple classes, then they start to recognize maybe that's their root problem? Uh, You know, it just depends. I mean, it's just, it's just like anyone who is getting treatment for anything. The first step is admitting I have a problem and I need help. So they would go into programming and sometimes they would understand, okay, I have a problem and this is ringing true with me. This rings a bell. This feels like me. And then sometimes they'd be like, I am not ready to deal with this. I'll go (laughs) through the motions and I'll go through the program and I'll get my certificate, but I am not feeling it. It just kind of depended. What about women that came in pregnant? Do you guys have a a section for that or they just go in with everyone else? Yeah, we were actually the intake facility for our state. So everybody came to us first, got assessed. And if they were pregnant, we sent them to another facility that was closer to a hospital and they had a special unit for pregnant mothers. So not only did they have access to proper medical care, but they had a unit that was dedicated to maternity. And in addition to that, they had a program where if the mother fit a certain criteria, meaning, you know, what was her crime? How long was she going to be incarcerated? Those kinds of things. Then she was accepted into a program where they were allowed to give birth and keep their children with them for the first 18 months, or at least until they were released. Wow. Yeah. So they had nannies, they had everything that you could possibly need to care for children. And the mothers were able to stay with their children, bond with them and go through the programming not just to address their issues, but also parenting. That's what I was going to say, a parenting skills probably. Yep. It was very successful. And we love to visit. <laughs> Every <laughs> chance I got to go to that facility, I would go. It was heartwarming to see these mothers being mothers because a lot of them never 
had that modeled. They've never had someone model a mothering behavior to them. So they didn't know how to do it. And it's that way with a lot of skills, really, for people that come in. A lot of times they won't even know how to properly care for their bodies because they just never had it modeled. So those are the kind of things that that we do. So that's why shows like Orange is the New Black just pissed me off, pardon my <laughs> Because it took away from what we were doing. It takes away from the true purpose nowadays. Years ago, yes, there, there was no prison reform. There was no helping people. It was just punishment. It is not that way anymore. And we are moving so far away from that to the other aspect where it's like, okay, we know almost everyone that comes in has a comorbidity, meaning they have a mental health issue and a substance abuse issue, both. And we have to address the mental health aspect. You're going to get me on a soapbox here, which is not good, but <laughs> the, the mental health aspect of crime is so blatantly unmet today. The lack of mental health for anyone, at, you know, talking about it, addressing it, making it a normal thing, just like it is when you're sick physically. It's not a big deal to talk about, hey, I've got a cold. Hey, I've got the flu, whatever. Let's make it normal for mental health because it's so common and it's never addressed. It's not addressed when it needs to be. And therefore coping skills become substance abuse issues. Substance abuse issues become crime. That's the issue. And so we are moving so far away from the ridiculousness that is orange is the new black <laughs> to, okay, but yeah, and I'm going to tell you, yes, sometimes things happen inside prisons. Women will have relationships with each other. Men will have relationships with each other. They're human. Those are human relationships. When you're incarcerated and you're separated from everyone you love and you have to be there for a long time, you're still a human being and you need to feel connected. That's just normal. That's human being. So while it is important to keep that in a way that doesn't cause problems, it does happen, you know, but people are just so, oh my gosh, they're so obsessed <laughs> with that kind of thing. And it's like, you're missing the point here, people. The point is these people come in and they need help. We're going to try to help them as best we can. And there are people who come in that, that cause problems. There are people that come in that really are in bad shape, but that's not a majority. I will tell you that. The ones that cause problems, how do you deal with that? Like, do you have to, once they start causing it and you figure that out, they have to be moved? Of course, every facility has behavior rules and those rules are in place to keep everybody safe. But, you know, there's no stealing from other people. Some of the rules are very specific, like you cannot borrow things from other people. You must keep your items locked up. There's just a, a whole list of rules. And everyone is made aware of what the rules are. And there are specific infractions for each rule. It's just like laws in our society. Everyone knows what the laws are. And here are the consequences for breaking those laws. It's very similar. It's mirrored inside a correctional facility. So if you break a law or a rule inside the facility, there are consequences. And it depends on the severity of the rule that's broken as to what the consequences are. Back to the mental health part really quick. When they come in and let's just say they have bipolar or something, do they continue to take the medications or if they're not on medication, do you guys put them on medication? Absolutely. Yes. And sometimes they'll come in and not be on any. They have been prescribed it, but no one's maintaining, no one's monitoring that. No one's checking up with them. They don't go to the appointments they're supposed to go to. So instead they're using drugs rather than medication to help their mental health. Sometimes they'll come in on way too many They've gone doctor shopping. They don't have a standard physician that they see. And so they see all these different people and get all these medications prescribed and they're taking them incorrectly and they are just a hot mess. One way or the other, yes, they're assessed. They're licensed mental health professionals in every facility and they make sure that they're on the medication that they need to be on or removed from some that they don't. When... A patient is going to be processed for intake. I don't know what the correct terminology is. Are they required to go through a physical and mental health evaluation so that they can get a new diagnosis? Like maybe yes. a previous person said something else, but you're yes. going to, okay, okay. And then they get the treatments. Yeah. When they come in, they have been in a county jail somewhere, right? Because that's where they were first jailed after they broke the law. In the county jail, there are people who do the same thing that the people in a state prison do, which is they will assess. So what they will do, they'll gather what's called a pre-sentence investigation. And in that, not only does it describe what their crime was and how it was committed and all of that information, but there's also a full 
social, economic, mental, medical, educational history done by typically it's a probation officer in the county who does all this research and puts it together in a report for the judge. And then that paperwork comes to the people in the state prison who will look at that and evaluate it. And then they'll make their own evaluation also. So the person who comes in, we already have their background information. They take an educational test to determine what their education level is. They'll see mental health staff and be evaluated. They'll see physical medical staff and be evaluated. So all of those things are done while they're in intake. I have a billion questions and it might jump us back to some of the things that we talked about earlier, but just clarifying questions. At the very beginning of the conversation, when you were describing the layout of the prison, you mentioned different dorms. How many inmates are housed in dorms and are the dorms coded to particular offenses or age brackets? How are they sorted? You know, every facility is different. So I can only speak for the one that I worked in, which they were just numbered one through five. And there were two units. One unit was designed specifically for a program. It was a small unit. And so it was ideal for our uh, PLUS program. So the offenders that were involved in that program lived in that unit because it was such an immersive program. Every day they were doing the program as they lived in the unit. We had another unit that was specifically for the intake offenders. And then we had one on the other side of that that was specifically for the substance abuse program. So again, that was an inpatient. So all of the offenders in that specific unit were in that program because they were working the program every day. The rest of them were all just open population. Okay, that actually spawned another question that I forgot to ask you a minute ago about the medical. So if somebody comes in and they're addicted to heroin, you will help them through the detox process. Are, are they getting medications to help with that? Or is it like a cold turkey situation? Most of the time, by the time they come into a state prison, they've already gone through detox in the county. And do they get assistance there? Or is it kind of like you just go through the withdrawals? And It depends on if their withdrawal is so individually specific. If the person is going through any type of withdrawal, a medical professional will be able to determine, okay, is this normal or do they need help as they're coming off of the drugs? It just depends on the severity of the withdrawal. In terms of the schooling or the jobs that are offered within the prison, are inmates required to participate in those or do they apply? Do they have to have a certain criteria that they meet to be able to have jobs or to work the school program? How does that actual accessibility to those things work? A lot of times, and well, I would say almost every time when a judge sentences someone to prison, the judge has requirements for that person to complete before they will consider releasing. So a lot of times the judge will have a recommendation that says, they must complete parenting. They must complete substance abuse treatment. Now, most of the time, the judge will not be specific because sometimes they just don't know what's offered in each facility or even what facility they're going to. So they'll just put a generic substance abuse treatment. They won't specify what program. So if they have enough time to complete a full program, they will be required to complete something. Yes because dead time is bad. You don't want to come in and do nothing. You want to come in, learn something and leave better than you were when you came in. It's also very bad for mental health to sit and do nothing. Bad behaviors a lot of times will arise when you're sitting there doing nothing but thinking about the fact that you're in prison. So if they're not in a program, they are working. And they get paid for those jobs. They do. Yeah. They also get paid to go to school. They get paid to go to substance abuse. Those are considered jobs. So it's not like I could come in and say, I hate being outside. So I don't want to work in the garden. Can I do like <laughs> nope. laundry stuff? I don't, nope. I don't get to say that. Okay. Yeah. And I actually used to have that job. My job was classification, which included assigning the security level to each offender, determining what their level was. And that would determine what facility they went to because each facility has a security level. And what does that mean? Because that was actually my next question is how do they determine what facility they go to? So in terms of assessing someone's security level, what does that mean? Well, and again, that depends on the state, but in my particular area, each facility had a designation in terms of what kind of security levels. Was it maximum security? Was it medium security? Or was it minimum security? So those kinds of things determine everything from what kind of jobs are offered inside the facility? Because if it's maximum security, there's not a lot of outside the fence jobs. 
for example. Everything from that to it has to have double fences with riprap in between. So every security level requires specific levels of security. And so when the offender comes in and they're assessed an intake and they're ready to be classified, that means there's a whole policy that goes into determining what their offense is, what their criminal history is, what their medical and mental health situation is, what their education level is. That goes into a, basically it's a worksheet that then determines kind of a score for lack of a better word to, to say then at the end, okay, this person scores this level and this is their code. And by policy, that means they have to be at this type of facility. So that might be maximum, that might be minimum. If they're minimum security, do they fit the criteria to be outside the fence? Can they safely work outside the fence under supervision? If so, then they're eligible for these types of jobs. Some facilities have those, some don't. So at our facility, we had a couple of crews that would go out and work in our state parks. They would clean along the roads. They would do work inside the town, painting and beautifying the area. They would mow outside the fence at the facility, those kinds of jobs. So then those that were not eligible for outside then had other jobs inside the facility. And really it just kind of depended on what was available and that's what you got. Does their sentencing time weigh into that? Do people who are only maybe 18 months in jail, do they go usually to the lowest tier? Well, it does to some degree, to some degree, because there's also the medical and mental health aspect of things that you have to consider. If someone is on a mental health medication that gives them a specific code for a mental health code, they're not going to be allowed outside the fence. And then how often are they shuttled in between different facilities and why are they potentially moved around? Would it be because they're going to a different security level? Yeah, that could be it. And really, it just kind of depends on facility need. And, you know, if there's a large group of offenders that have reduced their security level because those are regularly monitored. There's a regular cycle where the case manager will review a person's security level and their classification to make sure, hey, are they now eligible to go outside the fence? Have they gone from maximum security to medium security? Have they gone from medium to minimum? If that's the case, the goal is always to keep them in the most appropriate facility possible. So you don't want to keep someone who's minimum security in a maximum security facility. So you're constantly having to monitor where they need to be and then put them in the appropriate facility. So it just kind of depends on, you know, how many of those people have changed and have gotten down to where they need to be transferred and when can the other facility receive them? What about being transferred to a facility out of state? What if I had committed a crime in Tennessee and so I got designated to a prison here, but maybe my family lives in Colorado. Is there any way that I would be able to request a transfer to a prison in Colorado so that my family could come and visit me? Is that ever taken into account? That is extremely rare for lots of reasons. I mean, most of them are legal reasons. Most states will not accept a transfer of an offender who didn't commit a crime there. And we have had to transfer inmates from our facilities to other states. Most of the time it's due to security reasons. Either their crime is so prolific in the state It's sort of one of those, we can't keep them safe here because too many people know what they did. We need to take them somewhere else. Or it's, they are so incredibly violent and they've done so much damage to staff and offenders here. There's nowhere safe to keep them. We need to move them elsewhere. But that is extremely rare. You had mentioned that you've got a lot of phone calls from family members with requests and complaints. What sort of things would they be calling to complain about or request your help with? It was everything from the offender called home and said, someone stole my stuff. Or they had trouble accessing the video visitation. Or they had trouble putting money on the account. Or the offender wrote home and told some lie about another offender mistreating them because they're trying to get something from their parent or their family member at home. They need more money. They want to be moved to a different facility. So they'll say, oh, this person is abusing me when in fact, they're the person doing the abusing. I mean, everything, it's just every day was different. And, and, oh yeah, that was a full-time job. Oh, I could imagine. I could imagine you got some crazy ones. One of the things I was curious about too is visitation because I'm going to reference a show. I know you hate it, but it popped in my brain. One of the characters on Orange is the New Black created, and I know a lot of inmates also have pen pals, but she had created this thing where it's like, oh, if you come in, I'll meet with you during visitation and you just have to put X amount of money in my commissary account. What is the process 
to get on the visitation list? I imagine that individuals have to go through some sort of background check or relationship questioning as to why I want to see an inmate. So it's not like I could just show up and be like, I want to sit down with X person. That's correct. Yeah. There's an application that a visitor has to fill out and send in along with a copy of their driver's license. We do do background checks on every single visitor. It's a safety protocol. So if this person who wants to come in and visit has recently been incarcerated or if they have a specific crime or there's a lot of different things in the policy that say, okay, this one's okay and this one's not. And so if, if they didn't fit the criteria of that policy, they were not allowed inside the facility, period. How many people can you have on your list? Again, that depends on each facility. Each facility has its own way of doing that because every visitation area is different. Every population is different. Are visitations every day or is that just weekends? Um, There's a schedule in terms of in-person visits as to how often a person, I think ours was every 13 days. The same person can come and visit every 13 days. But an offender could have visits every single day, except for, I think there was, what, there were a couple of days that we didn't have visits. But again, that was a facility safety issue. So uh, an offender could have visits every day if they had enough people to visit every day. But if I wanted to come and visit one offender, I could only do that once every 13 days. Why is that? Is that just because then they would be living there? Like if it was the mom or the dad? They'd be every day. There's a lot of reasons for them. One of those would be you're cutting down the likelihood of someone bringing in contraband. It's always a security issue. There's always a reason behind it, which is based in safety and security of everybody. Okay. I thought it was just like, maybe you would have a lingerer, you know, they just keep coming back every day. Cause I'm thinking if my kid was in jail, I don't, I would probably want to come back, but you're also hindering the whole rehab process, like you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. What about press or people that want to interview, they want to write a book about somebody because obviously the inmate doesn't know me. So would they still submit a visitation request that the inmate agrees or disagrees? Well, that was actually my job as well. I was the public information officer for my facility for years and years. And so Yes. If a person in the press wants to visit an offender, they would have to fill out the application just like everybody else. However, if they wanted to write a book and this, we had this happen where people would basically create their own blog by writing, the offender would write a letter basically, which was their blog and they'd send it out to somebody (laughs) outside the facility (laughs) who would then type it up and put it on a blog or they would write their book and send it to some person outside the facility who would try to get it published. I mean, in that, you know, that that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. They can do that. We also had people who would come in from the press to interview offenders. And I would be in charge of supervising that interview to make sure that a, the offender knows what her rights were. You don't have to answer any question you don't want to answer. And to make sure that the press also knew that is an inappropriate question. You cannot ask that question because it is a breach of safety and security. So that happened all the time. We had, I think, four or five documentaries. Why were they coming in there for a particular person or just for your facility? Sometimes it was a particular person. Oh my gosh. When the Oprah Winfrey Network very first came out, I think we were the second show on that network. And that documentary took over, I think, 18 months to film inside our facility. So that involved filming several different offenders over a period of time from intake to release. So that that was a big one. We even had Dr. Drew come in. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dr. Drew came in because we had Amber Portwood at our facility at one point in time. Oh, yeah. Teen mom. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Um, We had, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Paula Cooper, who was the first and youngest female to ever be on death row. Her sentence was commuted by the Pope. She spent her entire life basically behind bars. And when it was time for her to be released, that was a very big deal. We had a lot of press there for that, wanting to interview her, wanting to watch as she was released. And of course, we had the infamous escapee. She was a double murderer who escaped. And her story was featured on America's Most Wanted. There was a task force that was created with the Texas Rangers because of her (laughs) to to (laughs) gather escapees from throughout the United States. And it just, I just, I mean, there are so many, 
we had so many documentaries and television people that would come in. We even had one. There was a lifetime show that was created based on the escapee, but they did not ask our permission. So what happens then? Well, they went ahead and aired it and sent me the script after it aired. What? And it was so bad. It was so bad. <laughs> It was the worst thing I've ever seen and read. Um, and at that point, you present it to the legal department and say, here's what's happening. Here's how it was misrepresented. And they didn't give us the opportunity to to do what we are supposed to be allowed to do, which is to make sure that everything is represented correctly. So then the legal department takes it over. Do you have a death row at your prison? Or is that no. Even, do no. they even have that anymore? Okay. No. no. But when she was sentenced, there was. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And your state, they got rid of it completely? Or there's other facilities for that. There's other facilities for that. Yeah. Okay. There isn't one for women. I will tell you that much. Oh, really? No, not in our state. What happens to them? Where do they go then? They're not sentenced to death. Oh, they're not. They're sentenced to life without parole. Mm-hmm. Oh, why is that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's something we'll, we'll have to Google that. I don't know what the deal is there. Okay. That's odd. <laughs> and now, I'm, now that you said that, I'm like thinking, are there any women on death row in California? I don't even know because you only hear about the men. That yeah, and then that's an interesting observation. Yeah, that is. <laughs> oh, that is weird. I'm gonna Google that later. Yeah. <laughs> can they get married? Yes, they can. They can get married. Mm-hmm. And they can touch and kiss during that, yes. or no? Yes, okay. they can during the, the ceremony. In fact, during a visit, they can hug. Oh, wow. Yes, once the visit is done, they can hug. Are they allowed to hold hands on the table or anything like that or no touching until the end? Yeah, as long as it's visible. Yes, because the people that come in are searched and they go through the metal detector and there are people who monitor visits the entire time. So yes, as long as their hands are on top of the table. Absolutely. Yeah. What about children? Like if they have children, are they allowed to come visit or there's an age limit? Yeah, children are allowed to come visit. Yes. Oh, okay. And that's up to the mother. That's up to the person who's incarcerated as to whether they want their children to come in or not. We also had our own parenting program, and I was also in charge of that, where, you know, the offenders would take parenting classes. And then that at that specific building, we had a play yard with a playground. During different holidays, Halloween, we always had a big party for Halloween and one for Christmas, where we would allow the children to come in without anyone else, just them and mom inside this special building that we had. And of course, all the staff got involved because it was so much fun. We'd let them get their faces painted. They could come in dressed in a costume. We'd have Santa come in and give presents. We have crafts and we had just all kinds of fun stuff for the kids to do just to be alone with mom. Because at a normal visit, the child has to be supervised and brought in by an approved adult. And they have to sit there with them during the visit. So at this, when they're in the parenting program, they get to come in, just be with mom. And that's also good for them to connect and keep build oh, yes. or keep a relationship. That's awesome. Yeah. They just get to be mom. Do they have to meet certain criteria to even yes. be able to do that? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's so many rules. Oh, yes. If you <laughs> yeah. don't have rules, it's not a correctional facility. It's a bad news. Yeah. Yeah. What about contraband? Because again, in movies, you always see it just stashed everywhere throughout the prison. <laughs> I'm assuming that's not accurate. Well, okay. So you're going to always have contraband to some degree. But when your staff is doing their job well and appropriately and everything is run well, those are rare and usually they're found pretty quickly. So yes. What are the most common items you're finding? Because of course my head immediately goes to a cell phone. Those are very rare, at least where I was, um, because we just, we went through the mail so well and we made sure that people that were coming in were very well searched and there was a metal detectors and people would monitor. So at our facility, it was just really rare for that to happen. Most common contraband would be like homemade things. Like if someone wanted to make a tattoo needle um, or they wanted to make what we call hooch, those kinds of items, they would hoard batteries or they would get things from the kitchen to make things. There were some shanks sometimes, but most of the times those were for people who felt they needed protection. Do you get people that try to hide stuff out in the yard for inmates 
like cell phones or things like that? Does that ever happen? Not at my facility. No. I mean, it just kind of depends on where the facility is located. I mean, if your facility is located in a more populated area where there's streets around it, that is a more common occurrence where people will try to throw things over the fence. Where we were located, there was nothing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's not going to happen. How do you smuggle in a cell phone? Like that would be, it's a little bulky. I could just tell you all kinds of stories. You don't want, you don't want to know. Oh God. I'm looking at my cell phone literally right now. I'm thinking, (laughs) where the hell would I put that cell phone? (laughs) Nikki, I think you can think of one place that somebody would try to shove that. At least one. I don't think that would fit. People are so creative. Sometimes they'll have a, oh, like a, a can of soda and it's fake. And you can stuff all kinds of stuff down inside that. So if you have a staff person who is not on the up and up and they bring in their lunch every day and you open up the lunch and you search it and you see there's a can of soda and it's a sandwich and whatever. And you're like, okay, well, inside that can of soda, they brought in a cell phone because they've gotten paid to do it. Wow. That's how that usually happens. Okay. (laughs) Like Jurassic Park when he had the shaving cream, but it was really the bottom like unscrewed. Yes. Yeah. That kind of stuff. It's amazing what people, the ingenuity people have to to do illegal things. (laughs) (laughs) And that always blows my mind too, because when you have an officer who is not a criminal and then they get persuaded by a criminal always blows my mind. It really does. When you're doing the hiring process, they're going to do a background check on you, obviously, but they also want to check your finances because if you are not doing well financially, you are susceptible to manipulation and to bribing, bribery. And that's in fact, when we had our escapee, that's exactly what happened. Although the offender who escaped was a master manipulator. I mean, a master manipulator. She was so good at getting what she wanted and getting people to do what she wanted. That's how she ended up in prison. So they're so good at watching. They'll watch someone for a long time and they'll notice things and then they'll take advantage of gaining that person's confidence. And then they'll start to ask for little, little things like a piece of gum or extra time in this room or And then they'll start to, oh, well, now we need some privacy. Now here's money that I can give you if you'll bring me some hair dye or bring me a cell phone or whatever. And then that's how it all happens. And so once you give an offender something that they're not supposed to have, they have you over a barrel because now they can say, I'll have your job if you don't do this for me. You know what I'm saying? When you are coming in as a new correctional worker, the very first thing you'll learn is how not to be manipulated. (laughs) People will inevitably say, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not stupid. That's not going to happen to me. It will. Well, yeah. Cause even just by you saying, I'm thinking I would never do that. But then now that you just said, even just the littlest of things by asking for a piece of gum, I would feel I'm thinking, picturing myself, human nature, I wouldn't want to be rude and be like, right. no. So then I would, oh, okay. It's just a piece of yeah. gum. Or oh, Google. it's just, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's, oh. that's exactly how it happens. And because they have plenty of time to take their time and do what they need to do and gain your confidence. I mean, that's just the way it works. And and so that's why there are so many rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why. Uh, because you as a staff member, it's not just the safety and security of the facility. It's your life, your children's lives, your everything is, is at stake. So you have to follow those rules. Do they have access to internet? Say they want to work on me. I'm going to be, because I gave them the piece of gum because I didn't want to be rude. And then now they've Googled my name and now they're finding out personal information on me. No, they don't have access to the internet, but they have access to a telephone. Oh, okay. And they can call somebody and say, hey, Google this person. That's why when people would sometimes get so worked up about, well, I don't want to tell them my first name. They already know it. Yeah. I mean, in this day and age, you cannot assume that they haven't already Googled you. That's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah. <No. laughs> it's so easy. Out of that whole time, you've only had one person escape? Oh, yes. That's it. Yeah. And that was a big one. That was a bad one. <laughs> Did they catch her? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They caught her. I mean, it's just the most rare occurrence. What about when they're released? Because again, in movies, the prison door opens and they've got their little bag of things they came in with and then they just walk down this road and off they go. Is that Mm. the same kind of way that they just walk out the prison door or are they shuttled somewhere else? They're never just walking out the door by themselves. Never, ever, ever, ever. (laughs) 
Let okay. me reiterate that. Never does that ever happen. I talked to you at the beginning about this case management process that we have. So the case management process begins at sentencing and ends at release and after. There's an after release program at this point because all of these organizations have gotten together from the state prison to the county jails, to the probation and parole officers, to housing and substance abuse assistance and everything. It's just a giant conglomerate now where everyone's working together to help this person not just while they're incarcerated, but after they're released. So more than likely in our facility anyway, a person who is being released is going to have a job lined up if they don't already have one. They will have everything that they need to apply if they don't already have one, including their resume, all of their work history. They know exactly where they need to go to apply. They have transportation lined up, housing, obviously, they cannot be released without housing, all of those kinds of things. Where are they going to go to get their medical treatment? And if they're on medication, they're released with a certain number of days of that medicine until they can get to somewhere to get that refilled. They're followed up with by a case manager in the county, wherever they're released to. There's a parole or probation officer assigned to that person, and they're going to follow them. They're going to meet up with them. They're going to make sure they're okay. So on the actual day release, they can either be transported by a person in the Department of Correction who will take them where they need to go, or they'll have someone come and pick them up. Were there ever inmates that you just did not want to interact with or that you were maybe even fearful of interacting with because of what you read in their files? No. they're Oh, trust me. The things that I read in the files were incredibly disturbing and would bother me and still bother me to this day. It's a form of trauma really to read it, but I always maintain my professionalism. I had a job to do. And if I could help them in some way, then I would. There were some, I definitely did not enjoy being around. There were two over my entire career. There were two offenders that when I looked at them, I didn't see anything looking back. Those were the ones that scared me. (laughs) Yeah, they were sort of dead inside. That was creepy. Yes. Um, But never I was never, you know, fearful. I never felt like I couldn't be in a room with them because I was afraid. It was just I was aware of what they were capable of. But most of the time, I will say, even in the worst crimes, almost all of them, not all of them, but almost they were under the influence of something when they committed those crimes. They were not in their right minds. They were not healthy. They were either high or drunk or having some sort of a psychotic break or something was happening where they were not who they are. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most of the time there are, there were some where you just can't explain it and you don't really want to think about it. (laughs) But (laughs) I just tried my very best to be as fair, firm, and consistent as I could with everybody so that there was no question that I was going to do my job. Is a deputy warden, is that an elected position or how do you get that job? Not in my state. It is not elected. You have to apply and you're interviewed by a interview board, and then it gets approved by your warden and your executive staff within the state. How did you get into being a warden? Because I can't imagine as, you know, a seven-year-old little girl, you were like, I'm going to be a prison warden. (laughs) How did you even know that that was a job? How did you end up there? Well, I didn't end up there. I didn't apply to the job outside of the facility. I had to work my way up to it. You know what I mean? So I actually started out as a high school English teacher. What? Yeah. That's crazy. Okay. Yeah. High school English teacher. And then I relocated and I saw an ad in the paper for what was called then a counselor at my local correctional facility, which was in my hometown. Okay. But why did you apply for that? What made you like have a switch? Because it it was counselor and I had almost a psych minor in college. I was five credits shy of a psych minor in college. So I was like, ooh, that sounds interesting. And it's close to home. And hey, this sounds great. So I interviewed and I got the job. And it wasn't anything close to what I thought. (laughs) But when you go work in a prison, you find out very quickly, you either love it or you hate it. And it does not take long. So I loved it. For some reason, I was like a square peg in a square hole. It was just, I loved it. I loved working with the offenders every single day. I had my caseload. My office was in the dorm with the offenders. I felt like I was really 
in the trenches doing some good stuff. You know what I mean? And and I guess that's why it felt good. And so then I just worked my way up. I learned as much as I could. I participated in every training that I possibly could because it just became like a passion. And my goal was to become deputy warden. That was my goal. And that's what I did. Amazing. And it's so interesting because I hate to lump you in with all the other podcast guests, but almost every single one, that's not what their background was in, or, you know, they somehow just fell into these positions. And it's incredible the way that life steers you into these opportunities you never would have pictured for yourself, you know? Yes. That's what makes life so fun. Very true. And slightly (laughs) terrifying sometimes. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) So let Heather uh, do a couple fun ones and then we can let her leave. Okay, perfect. Okay. Heather, if you were to pick your last meal, what would it be? Oh my gosh. Which isn't really a fun question, but you know. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it would definitely involve cheesecake. I know that much. Okay. Yeah. Cheesecake for sure. Probably some, um, some pasta, some seafood and some cheesecake. That'd be it. That'd be good for me. Yeah, I like it. Okay. A red sauce <laughs> pasta, a cream based. What, what are you thinking? I, I would do any of it. Honestly, maybe a, maybe a mushroom risotto. That's, Ooh, that's good. Yeah. Okay. I have one. Uh, what is one of your hobbies? I sing. Oh, really? I am an avid reader. It's like, you know, I just can't get enough reading. <laughs> what do you and like I, to read? And I write. I'm also a writer. So yeah. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. What do you like to read? I like at this point I'm into metaphysical. So I like to read Eckhart Tolle. I like um, Abraham Hicks. I like Alan Cohen. Oh, I, I've just got so many. I Oh, well, the OG, which would be uh, Louise Hay. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And you write too? Are you writing a book or what are you doing? I'm, I'm actually in the middle of writing a screenplay, believe it or not. Oh, fun. Yeah. And I've been published. I've written poetry years ago. I was published with that. I was a published public information officer at the prison. I wrote for the Inside Corrections magazine. And oh, um, yeah, that that's that takes up quite a bit of time. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, Heather, I'm you're actually, a very I'm... busy person. All right. Well, we don't want to keep her longer. I would ask 10 more, but... <laughs> Yeah, we can let her go. Thank you for being such a good sport, Heather, and for going along with us and letting us answer all our questions. We really appreciate your time. You're so welcome. And I tell you what, I really appreciate your platform. I did some research and I have listened to a few of your podcasts on your website and it's just really... I just appreciate what you're doing. So Awesome. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you again, Heather. Have a great rest of your Friday and have a good weekend. Thank you, ladies. You too. Question of the hour. Would you do the job or not? Uh, No, I couldn't do the job just because when she said that they start off by asking if they can have a piece of gum, I would have already given them gum and then now I'm in their pocket. So no, I can't do it. Yeah, you would have already uploaded $100 to their commissary (laughs) and help got a letter to another inmate. Yeah, like I would suck at it because then I wouldn't want to be rude. So then I just, you know, I give them the gum and then it's all downhill from there. So I couldn't do it because of that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a slippery slope because I I even feel like, oh, can I just have five minutes extra in the TV room? (sighs) Sure. Right. What's it going to, you know, what's it going to do? So, yeah, I feel like it's a very slippery, slippery slope. Yeah. I didn't even ask her about her her parenting style, if that's going to change how she reacts to even the kids. Cause I'm thinking my kids now they're like five more minutes. I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. You know? And so I wonder if she's just, you know, got to get on it at home too. Oh, see, that's, that is a good point that we didn't ask her because I do feel like if I had to be so rigid every day at my job, that that would just naturally carry over to my house. Yeah. And I just wouldn't be able to like constantly keep going back and forth between limits and limitless. And, you know, I think that would be hard to juggle too, for sure. Yeah. It was really interesting. I thought it was cool, but I definitely couldn't do it. Could you do it? No, I couldn't do it just because I think I would have a very hard time separating Mariah bias. Like I would read the file and I would be like, you deserve every day that you have in here. And then some, you know, I just, yeah. I would have a hard time with that. No. Yeah. That makes sense. I couldn't do it for that reason too. I'd give him the gum and I couldn't be like, oh, maybe you're not, not this. No. Like, cause like the lady she said that killed her kids, like I couldn't get past the fact that like 
You took the life of children and your children. Yeah, it's so bizarre to me. So I, for that, I just could not. I could not. No, I, I couldn't either. But thank God people can. Right? Yeah. And I mean, I do believe like there are individuals, I do truly believe there are individuals that can go and reform their lives and utilize these programs and eventually work their way out of being in the system this way. So what she is doing, I do believe has a huge, profound impact on some individuals. And that's incredible work. And she just has so much responsibility between like inmates and the CEOs and the rules and the state rules and the county rules. And I, I just feel like it would just be overload all the time. Not for me, but Man, the amount of respect I have for someone like her, e- enormous. Yeah, she was a good one. So hopefully we can do just as good next week because right? I think I think this is a great one. I know, me too. Love maybe, that. Maybe we're biased, but I don't know. But hey, you know what, listeners? Let us know. Give us a review. Let us know how you enjoyed today's uh, episode. We'd love to hear from you. All right. Well, let's see you next week's. All right. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We do encourage you to follow us at Instagram at Body to Burial. Hit us up on Twitter at Body to Burial. And you guessed it, you can send us an email to hello at bodytoburial.com. If you have any guest suggestions, just let us know. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button on whatever app you are listening to. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time.